Bodies in the Bayous, a podcast by Morgan Kelly and Gretchen Scanlon, presents Season 4, Iola, Eroding Justice. Episode 1, Iola, 1969. Lois McMaster Bejold said, the dead cannot cry out for justice. It is the duty of the living to do so for them. Iola is a special place where the people are very friendly and have never met a stranger. Everyone wants to help and would do anything they can to lend a hand. The year 1969 was a turbulent time in history for the United States. The country was still in the middle of the Vietnam War and protests over the draft raged on what had begun by protesters with college students and were now being joined by the parents of draft-aged men and returned veterans of the war. The country was trying to recover from the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King just a year earlier. The country would find a reason to celebrate with moon landing and the first man walking on the moon in July. In August, the largest music festival of all time, Woodstock, took place outside of Bethel, New York. In September, the Beatles released Abbey Road, the last album that would be released by the band. In the small southeastern Kansas town of Iola, two women lost their lives just three days apart in a mystery that has haunted this small town for five decades. But before we can tell you what happened in September of 1969, it is important to give you a picture of what life was like growing up in Iola. To help us do that, our former local radio broadcasters, J.D. Wilkes and Troy West, who both grew up there. Growing up in Iola, it was a um, it was a safe town. I mean, um, kids were to go out and play and until the streetlights came on, that was always the rule for mom. You know, when the streetlights came on, that's when it's time to come home. And we rode our bikes everywhere. Um, rode our bikes downtown to get haircuts. Um, we rode our bikes to baseball practice. We rode our bikes to the swimming pool. And I was thinking about this today. The only thing my mom was ever worried about when we were riding our bikes, you know, far away was um, to go to the swimming pool, you had to cross the highway. And uh, so that was her only concern at all. There was never concern about safety. There was never concern really about anything. Um, we would do a lot of fishing back then on Elm Creek. Um, there were railroad um, trestles going across the creek. And we would sit on the trestles and fish and uh, listen for the trade. Because when you heard the trade, you had to get off the trestles. And at you know, 10, 12 years old, that's something that my mom and dad, um, they were concerned about, but not worried enough to not allow me to go do it. So it was a, it was a great town to grow up in lots of adventures, plenty of trust from mom and dad. And, you know, everybody knew everybody. So if I was in town causing a problem, um, my mom and dad would, would have found out about it before I got home. You didn't lock the, the house door. You didn't lock your car doors. There was, there was never a concern. There was not, I think my dad had guns for hunting, but you know, there was never 
uh, talk of, well, here's dad's pistol. This is, you know, for protection, leave it alone, kids. There was none of that. There was never worry of anybody, you know, coming into your home. No, I don't, I don't remember doors ever being locked. Uh, people just walked in at, at, at our house. I mean, they didn't even knock. Mm -hmm. They just walked in. It was just expected. Um, so I, I don't it's, And it was the same at our house, too, with the guns. Uh, guns were not even looked at as any kind of personal protection sort of thing. It was just uh, something that you know, was either passed down generationally uh, for hunting or something like that. Thank you, J.D. and Troy, for sitting down with us and sharing what your experiences were like growing up in Iola. Iola, Kansas is a picturesque small farming community located along the eastern bank of the Neosha River with Deer Creek to the north and Rock Creek to the south. Coon Creek also flows through the town. It is located in southeast Kansas. It is a place where not only does everyone know you, but your mom, dad, and cousin too. The type of place you could get away with nothing, yet two people would get away with murder. In the 60s, the population of Iola was about 6,500 residents, many of them living there for generations. The population today is only 5,500. The town was founded in 1859 and named for the, from the wife of one of the founding fathers. It is now the county seat for Allen County, a population of 14,700 residents who are all primarily white. Other than farming, the county is also known for natural gas fields and the city of gas located in the county had only a population of 430 residents. Now Gretchen, why don't you go ahead and tell us the story. In September 30th of 1969, a 28-year-old married mother raising two children, Betty worked the overnight shift so that she could be home with her children during the day while her husband David worked the day shift as a mechanic at Dale Witchman Ford. As a mechanic, David made a sufficient salary to support the family. At the time, Betty and Dave had been married for five years. They lived in a small, modest house at 821 North Street. The house is no longer standing today. Betty Cantrell got ready for work putting on her light green waitress uniform, the shirt dress type with the buttons on down the front and the pockets at the bust with short sleeves. Betty was headed to work the morning shift or early morning shift at the Dine Out Cafe, a small cafe located at 106 North Jefferson Avenue in Iola. David, Betty's husband, was not happy about her working outside the home. According to David, he had just talked to Betty the night before about Betty staying home with the kids and not working at night. But Betty had her own reasons for working. She wanted to make sure that her son Robert had everything he needed. She also had been working at the cafe for a few months and she needed a little money for other things, things that she wanted. The cafe was an American-style food cafe, the place where you would get a meatloaf, chicken fried steak, and a slice of pie. The cafe had expanded their hours to 24 hours a day and seven days a week earlier in the year when they expanded the dining room. Betty was a small woman, only about four foot, nine inches tall. She weighed about 130 pounds with a short pixie cut hairstyle that was kind of the style of the time. 
She had cat eye glasses. Eddie went into her son's room where he was sleeping, kissed him on the forehead, and then got into her two-door 1959 turquoise over white Ford Fairline and drove to the cafe where she parked in front. She arrived at 2 a.m. for the early morning shift. Betty was the only person working that shift. She would wait on customers and then she would prepare their meals. The diner had recently expanded their hours and it catered to truck drivers pulling off the highway for the night or people playing snooker at the local hangout called the Sports Center, which was directly next door, who would stop in for a meal after the bars closed for the evening before headed home. It would not be extremely busy, maybe only one or two customers, but it was enough for Betty. There would be another employee arriving that morning. It was a it was a passing police officer during his morning hour rounds that says the cafe was open around 4.40 or 4.30. Betty was sitting at a small two-top table, listening to a reporter portable transistor radio as usual, drinking a cup of coffee. But when the owner's son, Philip, began his short walk about two blocks, only about four minutes walk to the cafe, as he did most days, when he got closer, he noticed that the sign was closed and that Betty's car was not there. Assuming she must have had something happen and that she had to leave and would have locked the door, he realized he didn't have his keys. So he turned back, walked back home to 303 North Sycamore and got his keys. When he returned, he discovered that the door was open, and although the lights were off, walking in immediately, noticed what appeared to be blood droplets. Betty was nowhere to be found. When he looked, he noticed the cash register drawer was open, and the money was missing, all except for the coins. He called police and his mother, Ethel Ekstrom, the owner of the cafe. When the officer arrived entering the cafe, the officer noticed that there was blood in several places in the cafe, a tissue with blood near the ground outside of the cafe where Betty's car was parked. The police would later report to the media that about $25 was missing from the register and that the amount of blood found in the cafe was what you would expect when one would cut their finger. Police left the cafe quickly and tried to locate Betty. When leaving, they informed Ethel, the owner of the cafe, that she could clean up and open the cafe. So this season, we're gonna change things around a little bit. So the first part of the episode is going to be the scripted narrative and the, that's provided to you by newspaper accounts, reports, local interviews. The second part of the episode will be the discussion the discussion will be our thoughts on the case, what we've reported to you so far, questions asked by listeners, Facebook posts, and other items not covered in the narrative. If you want to only listen to the narrative as you don't like the discussion part of the episode, now would be the time that you would stop. And please join us for the next episode. But if you're interested in our thoughts on the case and other information that we found out, then stay tuned. So one of the difficulties in putting together the first episode has been to get a real accurate timeline together on Betty's day at the cafe. We know some real key points, like we know that she arrived at the cafe at two, and then we know that an officer 
and says that he saw her around 4.30, 4.45. But then you have another Iola resident, Bob Lane, who says um, when he went by the cafe at five o'clock, um, it was open, but then he got a feeling like something was wrong or he was there around 4.45. He got a feeling like there was something wrong. Um, and so he went to the police department but we don't have an accurate timeline of that. So we don't know exactly what time the police get a call from the um, owner of the cafe. Um, and I thought, I thought they said though, it was like the cop had made his rounds between four thirty and four forty-five, And then the owner's son showed up at like around five. So they're thinking, that this robbery gone wrong with Betty has happened in like 15 minutes, roughly. Roughly, because you have this other person who notices something happening at the cafe around that 445 timeline. So the officer saying like 430, 445, this other person saying around 445, he comes by and then heads immediately to the police station, which is really right there. It's right around the corner. Mm -hmm. um, and he reports to the officer. And then you have Philip kind of supposed to be there at five, wandering back home, which could have only taken him a couple minutes, um, like four minutes. So maybe eight minutes tops, um, getting his keys, wandering back. So this is all happening roughly at 5 a.m., but because we're not able to access those files, it's like those really detailed finer points on it. Like what time did the police officers respond to the cafe? And then for me, the deeper point also is we know that the cafe was reopened, mm -hmm. right? But what we don't know is what time it reopened. Right. I mean, the only thing that we were able to gather is that it reopened before school started. Right. So if we go on roughly what time school would be starting and the age of these children, we're thinking between what, seven and eight o'clock? Seven and eight o'clock. You know? Um, yeah, that's the strange thing. We do have a Facebook post. It was posted years later where a young woman tells a story about going to the cafe that morning, noticing a small speck of blood on the door before going in, but she thought nothing of it. She sat down said that it seemed like people were acting spooky. Uh, she ordered a short stack and coffee, finished, and then headed to school. So you're right. You know, she had to be there around, I'm assuming school would have started before 8. Mm -hmm. um, so she had to be there around the 7.30 time period. So that's a short time for the cafe to be open. But in other stories, we're hearing that the cafe was opened possibly by 6 a.m. Yeah. Which means... You're looking at an entire crime scene, a robbery gone wrong, you know, up to that point, they still thought they would find Betty or she'd turn up, right? So, you're looking at an hour of an investigation at best. Well, and I'm thinking, you know, what cops were expecting was that Betty would be located relatively quickly. 
and that they would have a conversation with her and there would be a plausible explanation for what had happened. Um, I mean, the cash drawer being open seems like I'm not sure what plausible explanation Betty could possibly have for that. But um, maybe they thought she took the cash, you know, to kind of protect it. Maybe she's they're thinking her key doesn't work. We don't know. Again, like having access to some of those smaller reports would be ideal here because one of my biggest questions has always been what time did they make contact with Betty Kentrell's husband David right you know um and do they do they call him on the phone is it is it the owner of the cafe that calls him on the phone and says cuz okay so think about that the owner of the cafe comes down there. She sees the blood, you know, the money missing. I just wonder, was her first call to police? Well, I mean, we don't really know without that timeline because I was just under the assumption that she was kind of there with the police, uh -huh. you know, because somebody else had called. Right. You know, so I'm just assuming at that, because that's all I can do is assume is I don't know. I really don't know. Like, I would think the police, I mean, it's right there. So why wouldn't they just drive a block or two? Yeah. You know, I mean, so. Because I would think they would immediately go there to see if she was there. That would be my assumption. Mm -hmm. That would be like, so this has all happened. Her car is missing. The first thought process. And again, you know, with the reports, it would be a little bit easier, but the but we don't have those. And that type of detail is not covered in newspaper reports. And many of these people who were there that day, unfortunately have passed away. And so we don't have the ability to have their reports, mm -hmm. but it's a key piece. What time did they inform her husband David. Yeah, because, you know, even when we did an interview and we asked specifically, you know, not a detective that worked the case at the time, but had looked into it later, you know, um, he didn't seem to think that David was even a suspect. They didn't, the police at the time of the, the disappearance, disappearance had no reason to suspect to think that David did that. Right? right. And so we've always talked about kind of back and forth was, was it because he was at home with the kids getting them ready for school? You know, she may not have even been home to get them ready for school on a normal day. Right. right? That's, so that's the other thing. You know, what we know is that Betty would work this shift. Somebody would come in at five o'clock, but we don't have that information about what time Betty would actually leave. Mm -hmm. You know, was it, was it an eight hour shift? So did she work a two to 10 AM? Then, she wouldn't have been expected home or was it a long a shorter shift did she only work like two to six so that she would be home to get the children ready and i i have believed just in kind of reading the information that he talks about you know that um betty would be home more um i've just thought that she worked probably till six o'clock, you know, that mm -hmm. her responsibility was to be home to get the kids, to get the kids up and going, which wouldn't have been necessarily unusual at that time. Well, it's still not unusual now, you know? Right. Again, and that's a difficult for me because I, 
I'm the type of person I live on that, those key, like, what's the timeline? How long does it take to drive from point A to point B in this town? You know, um, and one of the other things that just kind of gets to me is, so one of the things that we have discovered in gets me about this, I guess, is, you know, the, so we have all of these reports of different people who have come forward who have said that they heard a woman screaming, um, you know, and that these screams were reported to police that it was a woman screaming in the night. Um, now, what we clearly know is that she was not abducted before 430. So screaming, I can see how that would be in the middle of the night for some people, though. You know, it's well, yeah. morning. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, because you're, it's it's night to a lot of people until they they wake up, right? Yeah. So if you're getting up, getting people ready to go off to school, six seven o'clock is going to be morning. So mm -hmm. it would be the middle of the night. It would seem that way. Um, so there was a screaming in the middle of the night that was heard by several residents in a lot of different places. You know, one down on Sycamore, which is near where uh, Philip was going back and forth, which begs the question, if you have somebody who's reporting screaming on Sycamore in this very short time period where Philip would be on his way walking to the cafe, but doesn't report any screaming when he doesn't hear anything. Yeah, that is kind of odd, you know, because I've always thought about that letter about the screaming kind of like, because it's not something that would be normally happening in that small town. So you're going to think either one of two ways, like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? Or I must be hearing things. That's not normal. Right. Right. That's kind of how I've always thought about that. But I would think a young adult or a young child or, you know, Philip's age would walking by himself would think something's odd with that if he was to hear it. You know what I mean? Or it would be in some ways reported. Which again, you know like he may not have thought about it walking to the diner if it was happening at the same time, but once he got there and realized that Betty wasn't there, he still may not have thought about it. But then later when he realizes or they you know the town realizes basically that something suspicious has happened there then he would be like oh i did hear the screaming i would yeah. think it would trigger that so and what and, we know is it's not reported to newspapers that philip heard right. anything mm -hmm. um so it's again one of those big unknowns of whether or not he did or he didn't but it, it's not something that comes out so and there was a lot of detail that was in a lot of these early newspaper reports because they were searching for her so they're trying to figure some things out mm -hmm. and putting information out to the public at that point in time is how they're trying to find her so you have that report of screaming on sycamore but then you have eight-year-old girls rebecca vicky and carrie who are having a sleepover and they live about one house away from the Cantrells on Jefferson. And so they're having a sleepover and they wake up. 
they hear screaming. And then the next morning when they get up, they see bloody rags and tissues in the alley near the Cantrell's trash can. So again, this goes back to if something happened, and then why is there something over there? Mm-hmm. You know, unless like if it happened strictly at the cafe, if it happened strictly at the cafe, uh-huh. why something over at the house? Uh-huh. You know, um, and that goes back to when did officers arrive at that house? Mm-hmm. You know, and when we looked at Iowa, you know, was, also like I'm sorry to interrupt you there, no, but like fine. even if the officers were to show up and like knock on his front door, they wouldn't necessarily even notice bloody rags or tissues in the alley because it'd be in the back and i'm sorry i just don't see them at that point being like we gotta search our house you know i just don't because they honestly believe that it, they were going to rescue or find betty right? right so i just don't think they would have walked around the house i honestly believe that officers really at that point thought that some accident happened at the cafe which to me in some ways makes sense when you're coming into that and you're seeing the kind of that scene that something happens at the cafe and she goes home. So, no, I don't think that they would be searching that house. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they're going home to be like, hey, you know, um, is Betty okay? And again, I would assume then their next stop would possibly have been a hospital. You know, there was, there is and was a hospital, you know, in town. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, this is, you know, before cell phones and all that. So it wasn't like communication was as rapid as it would be today right you know and crime scenes weren't processed the same way no no and that's unfortunate i mean you know but you can look back on you can see that in every single crime where crime scenes are not necessarily processed in the same way Mm -hmm. and you can be as hard as you want on but nobody knew that the technology was going to come to the point that it is now so um but what's what's difficult in this is to try to figure out that that timeline and you know when we get these reports like the reason that the sleepover girls we didn't put that in the main episode was because again this is a report coming from somebody years later Mm -hmm. you know and it's difficult to figure out when they're giving you this information and they're talking about the sleepover and then Jefferson, if the sleepover was on Jefferson or if the sleepover was actually at a different location and this person now lives on Jefferson, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's kind of this difficulty of trying to figure out, you know, um, and I this person who wrote this letter is still alive. And if you hear the podcast, please reach out to me. Um, we'd certainly like to get some more information on this. Um, because I do think it's very important, um, even though it's coming from somebody who would have been a very young girl at the time, it's still, that's an impression. Somebody goes missing in your small town, that's going to leave an impression. Well, sure, especially considering that you probably still grew up there for many years after yeah. and saw the newspaper articles year after year after year, right. you know, so of course, you know, I would think so. So, and then... You know, I just think it's kind of important to really look at the timing there 
Okay, so again, when you go back to the timing there at the cafe, you know, I just keep asking myself, what was it that this man noticed? Because his take on it was the lights were still on. So if you take... His take, the police or Phillips? No, so so there was a Bob Lane in between, oh, right? Okay, yeah, so yeah. The, the police officer drives around it's on his normal rounds which makes sense the um dine out cafe was located on the square and iola has like the largest town square or one used to have the largest town square out there um and so it's kind of a big deal you, you know you drive around to the square and i think you know the police station is right there on the square also so it's kind of a short distance around you're kind of checking out on the local businesses that are open and you drive by and make sure that everything's okay so he drives by everything looks good around he so there's two different takes on that one time it said 4 30 another time it says 4 45 so i think you can say between 4 30 and 4 45 but then this guy bob who's walking by on the street he notices that something seemed awry at the cafe and then he walks to the police station and is telling the police officer that something has happened at the cafe and then afterwards then they get the calls that something's wrong at the cafe but his story is that the lights were on at the cafe and it was open so he's just crossing paths hmm. with somebody and again if if that's happening simultaneously, and then you have screams on another side of town, not too far away, a couple of blocks down on Sycamore, then this guy didn't hear any screaming or see this woman being hauled out to her car. I mean, I'm, he, I guess he just missed it. I mean, the only thing, I mean, the only thing that I can sometimes think is like, unless he's interjecting himself right or every day say he has he takes this walk of the town square before you get you know there some kind of routine because unless you have a routine i don't know how you would know it would be awry even with what's being described by the cops and by philip and by people that firsthand witness the crime scene i wouldn't think you'd notice that at a glance as something to alert your attention Unless you walk the same thing every day and you're like, oh, I didn't see Betty sitting and she's always there. You know? Right. I don't know. Sometimes I think that people get like a feeling. No, I, I mean, can believe in that too. I mean, I don't know if it's enough of a feeling to walk into the police station and say something's off. Um, or again, you like know. Like if I have a feeling, I don't know if I'm calling up the local police department and being like, I have a weird feeling. I probably wouldn't. Yeah, you're right. You know, I mean, there would have to be, it'd be more or less like, I was having this weird feeling, so I walked up to the window and I saw X, Y, and Z. Again, because we can't get the the files, we don't know what's in the report, so we don't really know. Right, and since his report shows up on that very first day of her missing, I definitely think that... um there's some validity to whatever he reported mm -hmm. we just don't unfortunately know what yeah i mean it's just kind of like me like i know i take the same route to work every day and i know if i'm 
a little bit late or if I'm on time and we're talking minutes because my one neighbor at the end of the street is usually leaving at the same time. You know what I mean? So like, I know when I'm really late because <laughs> they're not even in like the car is completely right. gone. You know, normally I see him walking to the car. So I'm on time. If he's still sitting in his car, letting him warm up, then I'm a little late, but if it's gone, then I'm super late. You know what I mean? Like, but that's just those things that you notice every day. So when I see both of the cars there, I'm like, Oh, I wonder if they're sick. Like in my mind, I think that, but I, I'm not going to stop of course, but it's just those small things. That's what I mean. Like if it's a normal routine, then he might've noticed something weird. I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. So, um, the other odd, strange thing about Betty's disappearance is the location. The location of the diner is the adjoining is adjoining to the sports center, and the sports center was managed by a name guy named Kenneth White, and Kenneth White actually disappeared from that exact same location two years earlier. Under very suspicious circumstances. Thanks everyone for joining us today. We want to give a special thanks to the Iola community for all their help and support in making this season possible. Special thanks to Angela Henry, our local host. Bodies in the Bayous is an independent podcast produced and created by Gretchen Scanlon and Morgan Kelly. Research sources include the Iola Register, the Wichita Eagle, and the Parsons Sun. Music provided by Spotify. Technical assistance by Emma Kelly. Studio assistance by Catherine Alvarez. If you have any questions or a tip about this case, email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Bodies in the Bayous. We'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Special thanks to the Hutton and Cantrell families for their support. Our ultimate goal is for these families to have some answers. If you have messages of support, we are happy to pass them on to the family if you email us at bodiesandbayous at hotmail.com.